Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, it's going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. But what are you feeling? I do want to um, just spend a moment looking at a couple of the reasons that we might not be completely comfortable if they're not too obvious. Firstly, I'm not asking this question in a vacuum, am I? We are affected by what we've heard in church before. Skipping past graceless and maybe even manipulative or coercive methods of church fundraising that you may or may not have witnessed or been subjected to. I do think this is an issue for many of us, like so much of discipleship, of role models. How many, how many of us have seen really, really good, godly attitudes to money modelled by people close to us? But I think on the one hand, we've got this, this image of the kind of sackcloth wearing, you know, ascetic figure where, you know, godly attitudes towards money is just not needing any of it and, and proving that by not having anything. Do you know I read this week about early Christian aesthetics? And they would um, go to the extent, like go far beyond what we might associate with other monks of just not touching money or, or having any physical material uh, possessions of their own. They would stand on pillars for as much as they could of their life because even touching soil, fertile soil, was seen as being too near to things of meaning. I don't really know. No thanks to that one there. Um, but and then on the other end, there's this sort of model of bishops wearing jewel-encrusted hats and, um, you know, mega pastor private jet jazz. And, you know, I think we want to believe that there's something in the middle where marcha lattes are still allowed, but that aren't really one of those things. And I, I think that we also have a problem with the fact that the biblical teaching is really just, it's in a context that's very, very different to ours. Um, our 21st century global capitalist era, it just isn't the same. Believers having everything in common then isn't quite the same. Actually, nine out of 10 people in, in that era 
lived I thought I did everything right with the mic. You see, I did it all by myself, the mic and the stand this week, and I was feeling really good about it. Sorry, everyone. I'm working on it. Obviously, we live in one of the wealthiest countries on earth, but the disparities between us is enormous. And I think that this year, most of us, if not all of us, have more complicated financial feelings, don't we? Um, I could actually, if I, I know that if I were to ask people to come and share stories of financial provision from this year, I know we'd have really good ones because I've heard them. I know a lot of people have seen really amazing things happen. But I do think that our fears about our finances have come right to the top of our worry piles because the future just feels a little bit more uncertain than it has before. <coughs> John and Charles were numbers 15 and 18 out of um, Samuel and Suzanne Wesley's children, only half of whom survived past infancy. And their 18th century childhood was marked by the strict rod-bearing teaching of their mother and the debt that their father, who was himself a clergyman, racked up, which eventually took him to prison. So when financial freedom finally arrived for John Wesley, you can imagine that he started feeling really good about it. And he tells a story of one day when he's in his home and a chambermaid comes over. And this particular day, he has just bought himself some pictures with some spare money that he's found. And he's hung it up and he invites the chambermaid in to look at the pictures. And he notices as, as she comes in that she's freezing cold. It's a freezing cold day and she doesn't have a coat. And he reaches into his pocket to give her some money to buy a coat. And he realizes he doesn't have enough because he spent it on the pictures. And he immediately felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he'd wasted his money on those pictures. And this is what he said. Will thy master say, well done, good and faithful steward. Thou hast adorned thy walls with money which might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? It was a defining moment in his life by all accounts. And he made a commitment that day to never spend above his um, expenditure of £28 which he didn't do for the rest of his life. Even when he was earning a salary six times that, he gave the rest away. I read that story a couple of weeks ago, the day that I had hung a painting in my house that I was given for my birthday. And I love this painting. I've been waiting to, paint it, um, waiting to hang it for a very, very long time. And I love our new home. If you've been coming for a while, you'll have heard us sermonise this particular issue that we've had for a while between selling our house in London, which was really tricky, and then finding something that we could afford for our family to live in here, and then a miraculous experience of um, the offer that we had accepted on our house, which our realtor said, um, I think her exact phrase was, I need to start praying to the God that you are, because I've never seen anything like this. She really wasn't expecting our offer to get accepted. And it's been a bumpy road of renovations and blah, blah, but we are in our house now. And it means nothing other than grace and provision to us as a family. It's been like wildest dreams kind of territory. Um, and yet, I hear the story of John Wesley and I lose the grace and goodness. It goes right out the window and my old friend's shame and condemnation come to play instead. Just as a side note, John Wesley might not be the guy that you want to go to as sort of habitually uh, to get grace. 
just to point that out, he, he started a club called The Holy Club, after all. Um, and I take responsibility for my own reaction to, to, his, to his words, but Grace surely left me for a bit. And then last week, a few of us went out to chat to our unsheltered neighbors um, in this area, which was pretty devastating. Some days, that can feel really, really life-giving. We were just giving out breakfast and asking them if, you know, they knew that we were here and did they want to come to church. <clears throat> this particular day, it was very, very hard, the conversations that we had, just seeing the need and feeling pretty, you know, inadequate to do anything much for one person in particular. Um, but I suppose it, it just sort of leaves us with the question, what am I doing if I'm not doing every single thing I can to help? What, it's okay, what is it okay to have? What is it okay to have hanging on my wall? Where does grace end? Where is living by grace just totally ignoring everything that Jesus said about money? One in seven verses in Luke are about money. A third of Jesus' parables are about money. And he talked about it more than anything else other than the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke so much about money because he knew exactly what it is and exactly what it does to us. And the first thing that I want to say before I say anything else as a representative of church leadership to anyone who needs to hear this, Jesus does not pretend any of this is easy. He talks about it a lot, but rarely in black and white terms. In fact, so many of the stories that we've been taught are far more complex, I believe, than we've been given room for. Stories rarely intended to be read as one-dimensional allegories, almost. Stories that actually were taught to subvert the norms, to raise questions as much as answer them. So you know the parable of the talents? Um, it's actually told two different times, and it's debatable whether it's two different stories or whether just Luke and Matthew recorded it quite differently. But um, a ruler goes away and leaves a load of money to different ones of his servants, and the ones who make money with the money that, they, that they're given are rewarded, and the ones who don't make any money, who bury it in the ground, are punished. And in one dimension, I'm sure you've heard it taught on, this story means do everything you can with what God gives you, or he'll take them away. Which it, it, and good stewardship is an important kingdom truth. Nobody is arguing with that. Be a good steward. Give what you've got to the advancement of the kingdom. But to the listeners in those days, the ones who buried money um, actually as a matter of keeping the law, so what you were supposed to do um, in keeping with rabbinical teaching, giving money to a money lender to invest it is actually it's a total no-no. To those listeners, listeners who valued honor more than money, villains in their day were the ones who um, accumulate money making money, the ones who, who make the money in these stories are the bad guys to Jesus' listeners. Because it, it naturally and necessarily means taking it from someone else. To those listeners, the ruler who went away, certainly in Luke's version of the story, sounds a lot like King Herod's son, who in those days had gone away to Caesar to ask him to make him king. And when he came back, he killed something like 3,000 um, Jewish people um, because he'd heard that they were scared of him. They didn't think he'd make a good king. To those listeners, these stories are not cut and dry stories about stewardship. They were very much, what does he mean, stories? What is he changing? 
Jesus talked in stories about money the same way that he taught in stories about food and jobs and household stuff because he taught about things that we can all relate to to get us to think about the way that we see life, the way that we prioritize, and the things that we do to make ourselves feel safe. And money, Jesus knows, has great, great power. Money lies to us, it shames us, and it pulls us away from the place that we know we belong to. I'm going to read now from Matthew's Gospel, an account given in all the synoptics, the story, I'm sure you know it well, of the rich young ruler. Matthew 19, 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to, to get eternal life? <clears throat> a couple of quick things about that. It says man here, but in a minute it's going to say that he's young, and it's also going to say that he has great wealth. And in Luke's version, I think, it says that he um, is a ruler. And so from these things, we can deduce that he was almost certainly a Pharisee. But note the priest's supposition in just the fact that he comes to ask the question this way that he's already doubting that the good things that he's doing are enough. There does seem to be a genuine humility in his question. So what good things must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. So here's the thing. The guy knows the law. His entire identity, his entire life is tied up in knowing and keeping the law. And he would be very clear on one aspect of what Jesus says to him that maybe we might miss unless you are always counting. Are you a counter? The law, of course, has 10 commandments and um, Jesus only read out six. And he, these are directly from Exodus and then one of them is drawing in language from Leviticus, which I won't go into now, but here we are. All of these, have we got them? Yeah. These are all the ones concerned with our earthly relationships, our horizontal ones. These are the parts of it, very simply, that sum up a, con a conventional Jewish view of what it is to do good on earth. This man is loving his neighbor. He is looking after people. He's doing okay. He's living a good life. And yet he's aware that it isn't enough. In Mark's version, he runs up to Jesus and kneels before him. There does seem to be something so clearly tangible about this man's hunger for truth from Jesus. And then Jesus tells him, the commandments excluded from Jesus' list, which he'd have been very aware of, are the four that, um, that make up the entirety of it. Have no other gods before me, no idols or images, no misusing my name, and keep the Sabbath holy. These are the commandments, the half of the law, concerned with loving God. For this man, what he clearly hears Jesus say to him, what he knows to be true, is money has got in the way. 
everything you believe that has made you good, that has created your identity as a ruler, who is someone special on the basis of your money and power, stops the good stuff meaning anything because it stops you letting God be God. Because we both know you have another God. So get rid of it, all of it. Come and discover what will really satisfy. Come and follow me. And as I said before, we're not all the same. Our situations, our attitudes, our needs and our hearts, we're in different places. But for all of us, money gets in the way. When Jesus tells us that we can't serve, serve both God and money in Matthew 6, 24, many translations use the word mammon, and it's personified by Milton in Paradise Lost as this fallen angel, the god of wealth. I think it's actually quite helpful for, for us to think of it in personified terms as a god, a god ruling a kingdom that is in constant conflict with the kingdom of God for our allegiance. No matter what we have or don't have, no matter what we feel about what we have or don't have, the secret to worshipping God, not money, the simple solitary thing is to remind yourself as part of his kingdom is that everything is God's. Everything in heaven and on earth, everything in your bank account, everything in your home, everything hanging on your walls, everything in your closet, everything in your kitchen cupboards, everything in your gas tank, everything that you would like to believe that you have made yourself, everything that you hope you'll have one day, everything that you believe you've already so generously given away, all of it is God's. Mammon works pretty hard to tell us otherwise. Mammon distracts and it lies. It tells us everything will be okay when we have just a little bit more. It tells us what we're owed. It tells us what our neighbors shouldn't have because they don't deserve it. It tells us we'll be left out without it. It tells us all blessing is dependent on it. It lies and it shames. To go back to the question that I asked you at the start, if we were to dig down to what we felt, you know, when it's like, oh, a money talk in church, great. I wonder how many of us felt shame. You might have to dig through some of the annoyance. Did you feel annoyed at me? You should really have felt annoyed at Ed because he was the one that insisted I had to talk about this today. I didn't want to at all. Um, we find it much easier to feel anger and frustration than we do shame. It's now known, actually, that we register the feeling and the sensation of shame the same way that we register physical pain, and so we go to the same lengths to try and avoid it. It's quite a thing, isn't it? In fact, just me talking about shame can make you feel shame. Just me saying the word. And it's so powerful in our neural circuitry that the scientists now known that it actually corrodes the part of the brain that believes that we can change. How flipping stupid is it that this has been the power tool of religion, you know, for the history of time? We all feel shame, as unhappy a fact as that is, as unpleasant a word. Um, and its antithesis is empathy and connection. That's how we kind of, that's how we get past shame. 
if you want to argue with me about whether or not you ever feel shame, you should probably know that um, it's, it, having a capacity shame is completely linked to having a, capac a capacity for empathy. And if you don't have that, you're what's known as a, as a sociopath. So you can decide. Um, Jungian analysts describe it as the swamp place of the soul, the universal swampland. And I think mammon really does reign here. You haven't got enough. You haven't made enough. You're going to run out. Your children won't have shoes. Everyone else is much better with money than you are. There isn't enough for you. There isn't enough. You're not doing enough. You're not good enough is shame's mother tongue, is it not? The last thing Jesus ever wants you to feel is shame. This is why he's so aggressive about money. Because money is so godlike in its ability to completely dominate our lives. He came to replace money with himself. Where money steals, kills and destroys, he brings life. He came to take shame away, but the real truth of the matter is that faith comes by hearing, but it also, also comes by seeing and experiencing. And if you don't know that God is nice and he likes you, if you don't know that you're valuable beyond any metric that money can buy, that your intrinsic eternal value is in no way related to what is in your bank account, what logo you have on the front of your car, what job you do, what clothes you wear, if it doesn't feel like you are safe enough to trust him to say, it is all yours, God, then of course this stuff feels impossible. Of course it's horrible listening to money talks in church. Ed spoke last week about the need to forcefully claim and go after the things of the kingdom. And I had a picture for someone um, who I was praying for after the service, who I hope won't feel like I'm ripping them off by sharing with you now, because I felt it quite strongly that it was a word for a lot of us, myself included, this week. It was a picture of this person standing in the middle of a rope bridge. And um, you can picture yourself there if you'd like to, if this feels relevant. What was behind her represented like the old ways. Maybe religion of her upbringing, maybe a fear of a punitive God a mean God or one who makes a long list of the things that she hasn't done right. Maybe um, a God who doesn't include her on the basis of her gender or her sexual identity. Maybe a God who won't forgive you for one thing or many things. Perhaps it's also a lifetime of feeling and believing that just there isn't enough. Maybe your life has been marked by the real pain of financial hardship. But here is what I believe that God is saying. Step into this. Stop looking behind you. Stop living on the rope bridge. Lot's wife looked behind her. What's behind is death. What's behind is trauma and religion and abuse and control. It's nationalistic and pharisaical and law-based and it is the stuff that Jesus came to end. Step into this. On the other side of the rope bridge is Jesus, God in human bodily form, beckoning you. He knows where you live. He knows what it's like to be here. 
He knows what you're scared of. And he wants to show you what he's like. He wants you to know, not just have hope for, his goodness. In him, there is no darkness. Everything that we can even imagine about goodness is him. And it's not a lie or a con or a carrot so that you as the donkey can follow it, so that we can hit you with the rule stick later. This is who he is. And all of your imperfection in him is made perfect. Everything lost is rescued. Everything discarded is chosen. No more shame. No more questioning whether you're enough. You are enough. Right here, right now, today. There is nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you any less. And it's not just the case that he just sees past all of the other stuff, all the stuff that was back there all the stuff that holds us back, all the stuff that makes us feel all the shame. It's not that he just goes, never mind, never mind, the cross has done it, never mind. He wants it all. He wants us to bring it all so that he can heal it. So that he can rewrite the lies and rewrite the future and show you off as his masterpiece of redemption and include you in his story and in his kingdom. Yes, you. So that's what I believe he's saying to us today. Step into this. And I think it's a thing that the Holy Spirit does and is here to do. And I think it's a thing that we have to choose to live in every single day. Um, does the band want to come up? You, you might want to stand as well. I, actually, I wouldn't be serving you. I wouldn't have done a very good job of a money talk if I didn't talk to you about the best way to disarm mammon and its power is just to give some away generously. It's the best thing to do. And I wouldn't overthink it. We're going to ask the spirit to come as these guys start playing. I would do it as soon as you can because we have a great way of talking our self out of these things. You can give to bread, you can give to the Benevolence Fund. We still have loads of people in desperate need applying to the fund. You could give to something else you know God's put on your heart. If you've got fear and shame about money, it does tend to be the best way to deal with it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come. You might want to open your hands as a sign of being open. It's a sign to yourself as much to anyone else. Everything I've just said is just a bunch of words. If the spirit isn't here, if the spirit isn't working, it doesn't matter. Words don't change anything. But the spirit's power and presence does. And he's here and he wants to change. We didn't confer when Chelsea said that about the songs this morning, Making Old Things New. It's kind of encouraging that she'd sense the whole thing, but I do strongly believe that God is calling us to step into this, to claim it, to choose it. This version of Jesus at the end of the rope bridge, 
this goodness. Bless what you're doing.